Evidence-based science. Evidence-based science. Science without evidence is just speculation. We can suppose and speculate all day long, but until we get the hard evidence to prove our hypothesis, we're just guessing. Drug companies spend years and millions of dollars trying to develop new drugs and therapies to solve health problems. Millions of hours. Millions of dollars. And if they don't produce the results expected, they've got to start over. But if the evidence backs up their claims, then you move forward. You distribute the drug. You make money where appropriate. Case in point that all of us can understand from this past year, the COVID vaccine. We've all learned more about vaccines. Well, not all of us, since half of us are health professionals in here, but (laughs) many of us have learned more about vaccines over the past year than we ever wish we needed to know. (laughs) Is the vaccine effective? How effective? 50%? 70%? What does the FDA say about it? What does the CDC say about it? What does this group of people say about it? Is it 95% effective? There is significance to the data, the evidence that these drug companies present. There's significance to it. It's true for science, and it's also true in the Bible. As we continue our journey in Luke's gospel, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. And let's examine the evidence that Luke continues to give to us specifically surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 44. Luke 23, starting in verse 44, and I'm going to read through verse 12 of chapter 24. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness, Over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle When they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. There is significance to the evidence that Luke presents to his readers, to Theophilus originally, to us still now. If we want to have certainty concerning what Jesus' death means and the truth of the resurrection, then we are given here an opportunity, evidence, to believe what the Spirit displays for us through Luke's writing. So that we might believe in the significance of Jesus' suffering and the reality of his resurrection, Luke gives us two categories of evidence here at the end of his gospel. He's been doing this all throughout his gospel, but he gives us specifically two categories of evidence here at the end in these last couple chapters. Physical signs and prophetic words. Physical signs and prophetic words. We're going to mainly talk about the physical signs today, and next week, and maybe in the next several weeks moving forward, we'll talk about the prophetic words, which is later on in Luke 24, what we have not yet read. And so our main thought today, as we look at the physical signs, is this. Luke gives us physical signs that illustrate the significance of Jesus' suffering and the reality of his resurrection. Luke gives us physical signs that illustrate the significance of Jesus' suffering and the reality of his resurrection. The significance of Jesus' suffering is on display in three major ways. As he trades places with sinners, in the tearing of the curtain, and in the tarry of darkness. There you go. Hey, like that for alliteration? I'm trying here. Um, we're actually going to start in verse 25, which we did not read. Um, but I think this is important to, to take into account. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because this was, um, I think, the bulk of the ideas I preached about a year ago on Easter um, when I went through a lot of chapter 23 and 24 there on Easter last year. But this is the, where we get the idea of him trading places with sinners, the significance of his suffering. He trades places with sinners. Literally, in verse 25, he trades places with one of the worst of sinners. Verse 25 of chapter 23. He released the man, talking about Pilate. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom the crowd asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. So Jesus literally takes the place of the man who should have been crucified, and rightfully so. The man who murdered somebody, who led a riot against Rome. Barabbas. Jesus takes his place. And this tells us that Jesus' death, this is just one show, one symbol, one instance, one particular regard in which Luke records for us that Jesus' death 
was a substitutionary sacrifice. A sacrifice is giving something up for a particular purpose. We make sacrifices all the time. And it's not always for our own benefit. Sometimes we sacrifice for others. In marriage, this is common. In parenting, this is common. In real friendships, this is common. In baseball, they literally have plays called a sacrifice bunt or a sacrifice fly. I'll talk about one of those because I like baseball. You see, sometimes pitchers have to bat. This is oftentimes when a sacrifice bunt happens. Pitchers have to bat. Now, pitchers typically spend all of their time and all of their training pitching. They don't spend a whole lot of time batting, learning to play offense. They've had to do it when they were younger, but now they are specializing in pitching, and that's what they get paid lots of money. Usually, they're the highest paid people, though not always, to pitch. That's, and that's the defensive part of baseball. But when they are forced to bat, which is not all that often, they didn't have to at all last year, they oftentimes will be asked to put on a sacrifice bunt. And this is done to advance one of their teammates to second or third base, putting them, their teammate, that much closer to scoring. So you sacrifice yourself and your ability, your opportunity to battle against the pitcher, and get a base hit, you sacrifice that in order to advance your teammate. Why? So that your team has a better chance of scoring. And Because if, if you score, then you have a better chance of winning. A pitcher has a purpose in sacrificing himself. Jesus had a purpose in sacrificing himself. Jesus took the place of sinners. Jesus gave up his perfection in order to take on our sin. We sang about it. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become his righteousness. The perfection that Jesus had, he sacrificed to give to us. And in turn, he took on himself the sin that we had committed. He offered up his body to be broken for sinners. He bled innocently so that sinners could boldly enter God's presence. And we know this to be true because Luke tells us that what once separated sinners from God's holy presence was destroyed. The significance of Jesus' death is on display in the tearing of the curtain, which is really about where we picked up when we started reading. There in verse 44 and 45, mainly in 45, there in chapter 23. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The the curtain was torn. Now, who tore the curtain? This is something, and I usually try not to give too many of these because people can just roll their eyes and it makes them want to fall asleep sometimes, but I think that I can trust you in this regard, um, that you want to know this, and that this will help you in your study of God's Word, especially in the Gospels. This is an example, and we've seen it before, but I've not, not really pointed it out before. This is an example of a divine passive. This verb is passive. It's not active, and it's not active because it doesn't actually have a subject. You don't know 
according to what is written for us, who the subject is of the verb. The curtain was torn. Okay, well, who did the tearing? It doesn't say. And whenever you encounter this type of passive, we call it a divine passive, because God is the one who is the subject. God is the one who is doing this action. But it's a literary technique in order to basically say it without saying it, to sort of allude to it without giving explicit reference to God. It's implied. So God tore the curtain. Why is this significant? What is the significance of this? And the significance of this is this curtain could not have been torn by any other man. This curtain, as is understood, was probably about five or six inches thick. Now, I'm not saying wide, I'm saying thick. I mean, it was several feet wide and five or six inches thick. Now, you think of a curtain that's that thick. That's like that chair that you're sitting in. It's like trying to tear that thing. I mean, if it, even if there weren't metal underneath, I'm no power team guy. Now, that's a 90s reference for some of y'all. <laughs> right? I mean, you try to take a phone book and start ripping that thing in half. I, I mean, I can maybe do five pages, right? I can't do 1,500. I mean, this is something that only God could have done. And the significance of it is that this curtain, this very thick and very large curtain, was what was in the temple. And in the temple, this curtain, it separated the Holy of Holies, which is signifying the residence of God. It's where God's presence was known to be. It's where God said, this is where I am. And it was so holy, so set apart, so unique, so different, that people, men, women, were not allowed to go in there except for once a year. And it would be during Passover. And the once a year opportunity that some one person had, one priest had, to go into the Holy of Holies, they would do it so that they could offer a sacrifice and put it on the altar that was there in the Holy of Holies. And you know how like dangerous this was, because people who are sinners are not supposed to be able to enter into God's presence. And so this, the priest who would enter the Holy of Holies would have to make sacrifices ahead of time for himself so that there would be no sin kind of hanging over his head. And even then, people still weren't sure that he was going to come out alive because if there was any sin that he had not confessed, that he had not made sacrifice for before he went into the Holy of Holies, God would strike him dead and he would be left there. And so literally what people did who were standing on the outside would tie a rope around this guy. So in case he fell dead in the Holy of Holies so that they wouldn't leave his dead body there, they tied a rope around him so that they could pull him out just in case he didn't do it right, (laughs) just in case he entered in in the wrong way. There was a giant curtain that stood to represent 
the separation that we had from God, and that even in one particular place, once a year, could one man enter into and be in God's presence. Now, that giant thick curtain that was separating God's presence from sinful man has been torn. And it's been torn because it signifies that now we have been offered forgiveness, full and utter forgiveness to be into to enter into God's presence with a clean and clear conscience that we can now identify and be in a right relationship with the God who created us, the God who we have sinned against. Christ became sin so that we might have his righteousness, so that we might be righteous in him. And that righteousness now means that there is nothing separating us from the love of God. Nothing anymore is able to separate us from the love of God except for our own disbelief. It's the only thing. Some of us continue to not believe. But the significance of the curtain being torn in two cannot be missed. We sang about it in two of our songs today. It's a significant thing because it represents such a difference in how God relates to his people. The third thing here that we see is the terry of darkness, how darkness is hanging over. It's just sitting there. In the middle of the day, now, most of your translations, I'm sure, like the ESV here that I'm reading from there in verse 44 and 45, says the sixth hour and the ninth hour. You should have a note there, though, in your Bible at some point, especially if you've got a giant ESV study Bible like Carol over there, or or really just any Bible should have a note that says what time that really is. So the sixth hour there is noon. And the ninth hour then would be three hours later, so that would put it at three o'clock. So you would think from noon to three o'clock that the sun would be shining about as bright as it can. I mean, that's usually about the hottest part of the day. It's when the sun's literally overhead. It's not on the horizon. It's not setting. It's not just rising. It's the sunlight should be beaming down. And what we're told there in verse 45 is that the sun's light failed. One of the reasons why we know this was not an eclipse is because Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified, Passover occurred on a full moon. And for those of us like me who are not astronomers, apparently, in my reading this week, come to understand that eclipses can't happen during a full moon. There you go. There's your random scientific fact for the day. Eclipses can't happen during a full moon. So this was more than just a coincidence of natural alignment and happenstance timing. This was unnatural, and it lasted for three hours. The sun's light failed. I don't know exactly what this means, other than what it tells us is that darkness was over the whole land. And this is important. This signifies something. 
This shows us that the light of the world was being given over to darkness. If we were to flip over into the next page or two in our Bibles, we'd come into John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we are told about the one who created the sun, moon, and stars. And the one who created the sun, moon, and stars is now letting the light fade in order to signify just who he is and what he is doing. John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Then verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So this is talking about Jesus. Jesus was the light of the world. And he is being given over to darkness. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The significance of the darkness is more than just, oh, hey, it got dark for three hours. No, the light of the world, the only perfect man to ever live who did not deserve to die at all, much less a gruesome death, much less in the place of a guy who actually committed murder and was leading a riot against the people who ran the show, Jesus took that guy's place. And as we talked some about last week, and probably even the week before, and usually every week, Jesus takes our place. He took the place of Barabbas, but he also took my place. I was the one who deserved that death. I'm the one who deserves to live in darkness. But the last few hours of Jesus' life, while he suffers, asphyxiating, suffocating there on the cross, dying a horrible and painful death, that strangely, Luke doesn't even record for us just the horrific nature of the crucifixion. The physician who would probably know more about this than any other writer that the Bible gives to us. He just sort of glosses over much of that. Because what he wants us to see is not how excruciating the pain was, but he wants us to see what this means. He wants us to see what is happening sort of behind the curtain. Pun half intended. 
And so the significance of Jesus' suffering is seen, especially here in chapter 23. And then we get the reality of the resurrection. Much of that comes starting in verse 50. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Notice he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. That's an important detail. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was, was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now it's one thing that, honestly, I've never thought of in this way before, studying this week, and I don't know why, but when we're talking about evidence, when we're talking about can we believe what Luke is writing to us, just how strange some of these details really are and how clear it is that Jesus' own disciples, including the women who followed him, who were disciples, they did not understand at all the things that he said that we have recorded for us in Luke chapter 9 twice, in Luke 13 as well, in Luke 18, went over a couple weeks ago, where Jesus clearly says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. They did not understand it, but he said it. And that's what the angels say there, those two men in dazzling apparel, in verse 5 and verse 6. I'll read verse 6 of chapter 24. He is not here, but has has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, what's strange is the women went and prepared spices and ointments for Jesus' dead body. Now, why would they prepare spices and ointments for a dead body if it wasn't going to be dead by the time they got back there? It doesn't make any sense. It means that they really did not believe. And it means that they were not in on some hoax that says, hey, we're going to steal away Jesus' body and take it somewhere. They had no clue. They did not understand. And this is also important to understand from the perspective, from our perspective of how difficult it is just to believe. How difficult it is to believe these truths that we're looking at today and that we look at every week as we look at God's Word. These men and women were with Jesus for years. They saw evidences of Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders for years. Who knows how many people Jesus healed? I mean, in the Gospels alone, we have dozens of people who Jesus healed. Over and over again, people who were blind, 
they were then able to see. People who were deaf then became able to hear. People who were paralyzed, who literally could not move, who had to have four friends carry them around if they wanted to get from place to place, pick up their own mat and walk away because Jesus healed them. They were in a boat and water was leaking into the boat and they got all scared and probably rightfully so because it was a major storm and they're like, we're going to die. And they woke Jesus up and they said, Jesus, we're all going to die. Don't you care? And Jesus is like, watch this. And he calms the winds and the waves. They stopped. They listened to him. Time and time again, these disciples, including the women, have been given every opportunity to believe, to understand what Jesus has taught them. And yet they still don't get it. When the women encounter these angels, these two men in dazzling apparel, and they're told, hey, Jesus isn't here. Even though you saw where the body was laid, you saw the tomb, you saw the body, which is what Luke said, the women saw And they went back and waited a day because they rested on the Sabbath like they were supposed to. And they came back that following morning, a day and a half later, and there was no body. They knew where the body was. It's not because they went to the wrong tomb. They knew where he was laid. And the angels tell him, look, he's risen. And so the women, in verse 8 of chapter 24, And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And so who was it? Specifically, it at least included Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But how did the apostles respond? Even after two men standing by an empty tomb, which had once just hours before, held a dead Jesus body. These women go back to their friends, to the other disciples, and say, whoa, we just encountered these two men in dazzling apparel. They're probably angels. We were afraid. We bowed down. We were scared. We didn't know what was going on. All we knew is there was a body there the day before, and now it's not there. And there are these two guys standing there, who were angels, and they told us, he's risen. And so they tell the apostles, Jesus is risen, apparently. And we remembered, oh yeah, he actually talked about that several times. We just kind of forgot. Not the best students. But what did the apostles do? Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. All of these evidences... And still to this point, the apostles, the men, did not believe. Peter, at least, was questioning. Maybe there is something to this. So verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home 
marveling at what had happened. It, didn't, it doesn't actually say he went home believing that Jesus rose from the dead. It's more so he's like, huh, this is interesting. <laughs> I wonder what's going on here. Maybe something is, something has gone on. Maybe, maybe what these women are saying is right, but I don't know. I have to think about it. That's the idea that we get. We could read the rest of chapter 24. We could read just the next few verses. And you can see that these two other disciples, Cleopas and some other guy who's not named, are walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside them, but they're kept from seeing him. They're kept from recognizing him. And they said, man, yeah, you know, this guy, Jesus, he was a mighty prophet in word and in deed and all these things that have happened the last week. And he was crucified. We thought he might be the Messiah, but we're not sure. And then some women of our company said that they saw a vision of angels and that he was risen, but we're not sure what to believe. And Jesus is like, you guys are dull. And what does Jesus do? He recognizes that even with all of these physical signs that Luke has presented to us, that they themselves have been privy to, that they have seen with their own eyes, physically were there 2,000 years ago, they still did not believe with all these evidences. What does Jesus do? He gives them the best sermon ever preached, I guess. Because then their hearts are warmed. And they say, wow, the Christ really did have to suffer and die and be raised. And maybe Jesus really was raised from the dead. One of the difficult things about talking about the evidences for believing in the resurrection, the evidences for believing in Christianity, is oftentimes, and I know I'm like this, oftentimes I want to depend on the scientific proof, the evidence that is right in our face sometimes. I want to depend on if you would just see how the amazing way in which God's word has been preserved for us through all these centuries, if you would just look at the way in which these things are cooperated in history and how Jesus really did live and how you have other historians who have stories about him, how you have these Dead Sea Scrolls that have these thousands of year old documents that have been preserved amazingly for us that show that, wow, this stuff wasn't just made up 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but these maybe there's some truth to some of these things. I want to depend on these physical signs and these physical evidences to prove that my faith is true. But at the end of the day, it didn't help the disciples, which is just strange to me. And it should be strange to you. They still didn't believe. They were with Jesus for years. 
They saw all of his miracles. They listened to his teaching. They heard what he said. But they still didn't truly understand. They still didn't truly believe. What it took was God working through his word to truly open up their eyes. And that's what we're going to get to next week here in the second half of Luke chapter 24. The importance of the word. Now, I don't want to downplay the significance of Jesus' suffering or the signs that we can see in Luke 23 and Luke 24. The evidences that are clearly presented to us, and not just in Luke, but in the other gospel writers as well. I don't want to downplay those things. But when it comes to us being a people who are trying to reach our community with the gospel, who are trying to proclaim the gospel, we're trying to build each other up, we're trying to send each other out on mission to go and proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, to people we randomly meet in coffee shops, that we've got to recognize the importance of the word. We must commit ourselves to being people of the word. The word of God is what God intends to use to change hearts. It's what Jesus uses in Luke 24 to finally fully open up the eyes and ears of the hearts of the disciples to see and hear and understand. But I do appreciate how we can look back and see the significance of what his suffering means for us. The reality of the fact that he, he truly did rise. That we're not left wondering how did all of these things actually happen. But we're given a step-by-step account in history of what took place. So that we can have some footing to stand on. That we can say, look, we didn't just make all this stuff up. But what we are actually pointing to at the end of the day is God's word. True belief is more than just believing some truth. It is giving ourselves up to that truth. We started today by talking about the COVID vaccine. You can say that you believe that the vaccine is effective. And you might really believe that. But you haven't shown that you really believe that until you take the vaccine. I mean, you can say, yeah, I believe it's effective, but you really Put yourself out there when you say, I'm willing to get it. I trust that I need it. And I trust that it's going to protect me. This is just an example 
of belief and action, a belief that works itself out. Faith without works is nothing. And I'm not saying that you have to believe that the vaccine is effective. Don't misunderstand why I bring that up. But I think you can understand the difference between saying, oh yeah, that's good and that's good and wonderful, but then actually putting yourself under the counsel of it, putting yourself at the mercy of it. That's what we've been called to as Christians, not just to believe certain evidences, but to commit our lives to the truth of it, to give our lives over to God. Have you done that? I pray that you have, and I pray that these things would but give you more opportunity to believe. I pray that as we look at his word week in and week out, that it would spark a warm spot in your spirit as God speaks to you through his word and he says, trust me. Do you trust him today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us that we might be able to come back and look at day after day, week after week, year after year, to know your truth. That Luke has spent all this time collecting all of these accounts. Interviewing witnesses. Talking to people who were there. So that he might record these things for us. So that your spirit might use these truths to help us to believe. God, help us to be a people who trust you. Not just who know a bunch of facts. Not just who can point to a bunch of statements. But that who trust in you through your word. Pray that your word would be living and active. That it would pierce our hearts and pierce the hearts of those that we talk to. God, give us, grant us success, would you, as we proclaim the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.